It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. So do you know who Rocco Prestia is? No. You ever heard of Rocco? I don't know how to Sounds like a porn that. star. Yeah, it's a pretty cool name. Prestia, Prestia, I don't know. Hmm. But uh, he was, the, was, past tense, he passed away a couple of days ago, uh, was the bass player of Tower of Power. Do you ever check out Tower of Tower Power? Tower of Power, no. Is that an 80s band? Uh, no, dude, it's 70s. 70s, band. okay. And I mean, it's still sort of one of these bands that's like going, you know, but. Not anymore, though. No, he was. They had kicked him out already. Oh, okay. Um, he he was having like long-standing health issues. But have you ever heard a tune? What is hip? I have not heard that. Uh, I mean, you know that my encyclopedia of music is far inferior to yours. Well, check this out. This is a tune. It's his popular tune. You okay. might have heard it before, but maybe. What is hip? Ah. Okay. Hear that bass line? Yeah. So you wanna jump out your trick bag and ease on into hip bag, but you ain't just exactly sure what's hip. Ooh, yeah. that's sexy. Yeah, I'm sorry about it. Makes you feel good, doesn't it? But somehow you know there's much more to the trip. You gotta check out Tower of Power. Okay. There's plenty of listeners out there who are who are well versed in the Tower of Power, <laughs> I guarantee you. But aside from Rocco, the bass player, obviously the the, the horn section, unbelievable, yep. right? Unbelievable horn section. But yeah, they're from the East Bay. Okay. Um and uh yeah, they've been around forever and they've got a lot of like tunes like that, but Rocco is just the sickest, tightest, grooviest bass player. I mean, he's in, you know, it may not be cool to say this because he's not as cool as like Jaco Pistorius or some of these other bass players that people cite as like the greatest of all time, but he's up there yeah. in that zone, you know, huh. big James Jamerson, who was the, um, the funk brothers, uh, you know, the Motown bands like big and, and, um, James Brown's bass player for a long time. Mm. Like he's in the shadow of that guy, but like a lot of times probably technically better than James Jamerson. Mm. Um, even though James like invented all that shit, just the way climbing works, you right. know, like where the, the guys 30 years ago invented all this stuff and now we're technically better climbers. But, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so what, what are your jams been lately? Well, I've been mostly listening to hippie music. Really? Like what? <laughs> well, I've been on a big fish kick for like months You now. did send me that text about the, <laughs> the jam. And I've just been, uh, yeah, I've just been geeking out on their, on their whole, um, what would you call it? Like their encyclopedia of, of music, sure. you know, like going back to, so some that's like going stuff. back, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. That, that's like an old, old obsession of yours, right? You know, I, I got really into them in like the late nineties and early two thousands. And then, um, and then I, I stopped, I, I like had like an aversion to it. And then I've recently rekindled my love. I think I'm not a fish fan, but I think that that's a good sign mm. that you're going, because honestly, when I found out, a few years ago that you had been at one time a fish fan. It, it didn't, it really didn't compute. Like I was just like, really? Like, because if you're sort of a, if you're like cynical at all about music, then you, you, the fish is like your first target of like, yeah. you know, the stupid trampolines and the terrible lyrics and the, you know, like yeah. bouncing around the room and yeah, all that yeah. business. So the to, lyrics to, to are hear that you were like, I'm a, I was a huge fish guy. I was like, I really like the um, the improvisational part of their music, mm-hmm. and I find that just I find it endlessly fascinating to like listen to for different versions of the same song where you see where they go with different different music. That's so. pretty wild, dude. So, I think that's pretty wild, yeah. and it's great that you're back because I think that uh, again, I think cynicism and fish don't go together that well, and so right, uh, it's nice to hear that you're like reexamining. Well, part of it is, you know, I had this, I, I like listened to only hip hop for a long time, uh, in the nineties when I was in high school and stuff. Right. And, and then 
it just got so bad. Like, I don't know. Hip hop is the state of hip hop these days is like unlistenable. So I think that's part of it is that there's no new hip hop that's being created that I think is at all worthy of, um, of my, my attention. Like I'm no aficionado of hip hop. Um, I've liked the popular things that everybody else kind of likes. Um, and when I mean everybody else, I mean other white guys like me, <laughs> you know, that bubble up. I'm not like in there, but it does feel like they've hit kind of a Nashville zone of just like pumping out, you know, stuff that just works and fits into a box. And is like, yeah. do you know what I mean? It, it has a feel of that right now of like, well, you know, press the hit button on the thing and that's the beat and we're gonna like well it's actually make gotten, it work you know well there's like the pop version that mm-hmm. you're i think you're referring to but then there's like all kinds of genres like the trap music mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. atlanta stuff and so that's kind of interesting that there's like different uh there's different stuff coming out of california with like heavy on snare drums and stuff and then like the trap music in the southeast that's like very much um like mumbly raps and stuff and but it's all bad like that's kind of my takeaway now, and do you think that you've changed i don't think so changed? i think the music has gotten you worse know, you, you, okay i think the music has just like gotten a, worse there's like a, there's subject it's objectively worse than the <laughs> the 90s can music be than east coast worse? 90s hip-hop yeah right yeah like uh, my friend Joe Kinder, I've been hanging out with him because right. he's been in Rifle this right. last few weeks, and he he was asking me like if I've heard any of the new hip hop, and I was like, no, I can't listen to it. And he was telling me some of the names of who he's listening to, and he's like, I've been listening to Da Baby and Little Baby, and I was like, wait, are those two se- those are two separate things. <laughs> <laughs> Now you're sounding like a dad. Yeah, that totally. was a dad statement. Right there. <laughs> yeah, but I'm not listening to the baby or. So a he baby. couldn't turn you on anything. Well, how's he well, feel I about know. it? I didn't, I, he didn't play anything oh, for me, okay. so maybe I would have liked right. it. But yeah, you know, uh, I briefly dabbled in like the Gucci Mane era mm-hmm. of hip hop, but um, my heart was really like I can I found the connection in like the East Coast '90s hip hop of like you know Biggie and Wu Tang and so hel- help Andrew out. <laughs> yeah, send, send me recommendations. Send, send, send him a recommendation. You know that that's kind of I think what he needs yep. at this point is to because it's hard. I mean, look, as you know, the dad jokes aside, even if you're not a dad and you have like just endless time to stay up all night searching Spotify for cool new shit, it's hard to. It's you know we, we're in this media age where th- no matter what you're into, it's hard to sift through everything right mm-hmm. i mean luckily for you guys like you found the the best climbing podcast mm-hmm. the enormous cast and then you also <laughs> listen to this as a satellite of that but um it, it you know what i mean it's like and as a dad as somebody whose time is just like soaked up by everything around them it's so hard to i mean give us a break like to find something so recommendations i mean books are the same way like yeah. i sit down and i'm like I can open up the Kindle and like go to amazon.com, which has every book ever printed. And I can't fucking find anything because it's too much, too much. Yeah. yeah it's like overwhelming. So yeah, send, send some wrecks to, uh, to Andrew. Yeah. And, uh, and meanwhile, I'm, I'm down the tower of power rabbit hole again, which I coincidentally, I did this summer already. I just like, I'm a bass player of, uh, of like, you know, slightly beyond beginner kind of level. And, so I, I, I'm like always searching for cool bass and then, you know, the tower power and stuff like that is this kind of like, you know, touch, touch uh, home base kind of thing where I can go back and like check it out again. And, and that coincidentally this summer I did. And then I was like, what is up with this bass player? And did the deep internet dive mm. to find out who he was, found out that he had, um, you know, kidney issues, uh, kidney disease. And so it wasn't a surprise that he passed away a couple of days ago, but, uh, but yeah, dig on the Tower of Power, man. It's like the funk and... Um, so he just died. Yeah, just a couple... I mean, I don't even know exactly when. I just started reading about it today. Damn. So it was like in the last couple of days that he passed away. And uh, not a... You know, it's not like going to be something that hits the news. But among uh, bass players, you know, you're just like... It's one of those guys too. I, I don't know. Maybe the Tower of Power. They have a lot of ballads. They kind of go into some some sort of schlock. 
hmm. at times, which maybe has diminished their their reputation. But the cool thing is, is that even on the ballots, man, and this is a this is like the great bass player thing is like he's still like you can listen to his ballad ba- bass lines, you know, at like whatever ninety BPM. I mean, slow bass. And it's still like funky as hell, and like mm. he's still doing stuff that makes you go, "Uh huh, that's that's really cool." Mm. So the ballad bass playing, usually, you know, you just run in the run in the chords, and and uh, yeah. So check out the Tower Power. I, I, it has nothing to do with climbing. There's not a single connection to climbing. Oh, I thought you were going somewhere with all of this. No, no, I just want to talk oh, about okay. music. <laughs> I've been sitting back waiting no, for, waiting the, for me to make the big connection. Yeah. No, I just want to, I just was listening to him on the way here and I was in, a, I was not in the best mood today. I had some, you know, some setbacks at work, things didn't go the way I wanted to, but then I put on the T.O.P. man and I was just like, <laughs> yeah, so I was like, this is what it's I'm so true. About. It's like music um, is such an emotional thing. You know, you can bring you out of a bad, bad headspace in two seconds. Right. But don't play the Tower of Power from your Bluetooth speaker at the crag. No. Because nobody want nobody else wants to hear your, your music. So maybe that's the connection. <laughs> Have you um I I had a good dad joke at the crag the other day. Oh really? This is gonna be super insidery, but um there was like a you know, a truck out in the parking lot and rifle blasting music and my friend Dan was like, Where's that music coming from? And our friend Wendy, who's like notorious for always having her headphones on when she's climbing, was like across the on the other side of the wall. And I was like, oh, that's from Wendy's headphones. <laughs> and she's like, she's get, her, her hearing's gone down and <laughs> over she's the years. Crank them up. Yeah. Yeah, she's in her forts. <laughs> Poor lady's losing her hearing. Yeah, uh, she's yeah, climbing with the headphones. Did but you get I don't hear many I don't see many people bringing um blue like bluetooth speakers to crags anymore because the headphone tech bluetooth technology I think is advanced enough. Well, I'll tell you what. I think that a lot of ways rifle I don't know, it's just always kind of like put the kibosh on like annoying shitty crag behavior like that. Mm-hmm. I mean the dogs, right, the dogs are out of control there. And maybe the beta spray is out of control, but like I think that you can, if you bring up a Bluetooth speaker to the to the, say the, the 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 project wall there, you're gonna get like just withering looks of like, what the fuck are you doing? No, totally. Do you know what I mean? Like, because yeah, it's, it's too much of a scene. Yeah, it's too much of a scene already. It's too crowded. It's too talky. Yeah. And and like, if you were to bust out your hammock or whatever, like, I I just feel like it just shuts a lot of that stuff. I mean. You, one of the big criticisms of the rifle is that it's too cool for school, right? right? And so if you are sort of like a fair to middling climber, you feel pretty intimidated. And that is true. And that, you know, but that's maybe something you have to deal with. It might all be in your head. Um, a la uh, Mark Hudon, you know, nobody else is supposed to make you happy. You're supposed to make yourself happy. <laughs> right. but, but at the same time, the the flip side of that is that, yeah, it's like people don't like put up with, dumbass behavior right. there at all well you know? you know the um it's anytime you're doing something that is not just like blaine or cl- or climbing or just sitting there quietly waiting your turn you know it, it like creates this like aura of anxiety and and a scene <laughs> you know if you bring up like a big propane like fire pit and start cooking paella people are going to be like what what are you doing like you're here to climb yeah this is annoying this is not like this is not party zone this uh one time we were in (laughs) kalemnos and um is that a is that an example from experience no i haven't cooked paella at the cliff yet (laughs) but i'd like to. it was very specific that was a very specific (laughs) reference (laughs) well uh this one time we were at kalem we were climbing at some cliff in kalemnos and we did this was like 10 or more years ago now and we had um we had a speaker you know like an mp3 speaker probably one of those things that you stuck that like five pound ipod in into the middle and it connected sure and uh and we were playing music and this guy this guy and his friends hike up obviously they're like kind of beginner climbers or whatever and uh euros of some origin i don't know what where they were from (laughs) just a big yeah big conglomeration of euros yeah just yeah yeah. and they were and he he gave us this look i was in the middle of climbing a route and he gave our whole crew a look like what the fuck is this speaker doing like can you turn this off it was like 
he he was like grabbing his ears with his hands like it was like hurting his ears and so we're like oh sorry you know sorry sorry and um you know we turned the music off and as i said i was climbing on this route and there happened to be this like no hands knee bar upside down knee bar rest and like i was knee barring against a tufa and i took my hands off the wall and was hanging upside down and this guy when he saw me do that he went from irate about the music to Mm -hmm. giddy out of his mind and like dug through his pack and like pulled out like a nikon like 200 millimeter lens camera and started firing photos and asking me to do it again and (laughs) and then like he became the the nuisance like (laughs) like he was the nuisance all of a sudden (laughs) it's a fine line it's a fine line between sort of Fun police and nuisance. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So well, it's funny to... that like some, you know, someone that you perceived as as sort of like a beginner Gumby was the one who actually like corrected your shitty crag behavior. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I mean, I I can understand. It was like you <laughs> it was can play Wu Tang, right? It or was something like that. <laughs> we were actually we were playing. Um, we had this track that from Dave Graham. He had like remixed uh like techno into like hip-hop music right and he he had like this big like 20 minute opus of of you know just his like crazy music that he had for some whatever reason that was like the anthem of the trip yeah okay so we were listening to that so you were yeah basically it was all connected it was all like this discussion yeah it was actually connected to climbing Mario Molina is an avid alpinist, snowboarder, and the executive director of Protect Our Winters, an advocacy group that turns passionate outdoor people into climate advocates. So Mario Molina, uh, the the chemist, actually discovered the relationship between CFCs and ozone depletion in the atmosphere and has done a lot of work on climate change. And that confusions uh happened more than once i was i i worked for uh, vice president al gore for a few years and um i was on my way to texas to meet with a professor there for an event that we were doing there and you know when he met me he kind of made this odd face but didn't say anything and eventually as the conversation evolved he's like well i've really just admired your work over the years and just have to say like you know you you're, you're much younger than i expected and immediately it clicked to me i was like oh you're thinking about mario molina the nobel priest prize the, the nobel prize winner like um and as much as i wanted to keep that going because i full, i was fully basking in the adulation and respect i didn't think i was going to be able to hold it up for too much longer so uh so i had to kind of break the news to him that he was not meeting with the very renowned scientist and i don't know if he would have taken my meeting otherwise um, but this is actually, um, I did not know he had passed. So that is, that is really sad news. Yeah. He had uh, a heart attack yesterday and, uh, oh, wow. and it seemed like he lived a nice long life. He was in well into his eighties, I believe, but happy that you're not dead and that you're here to talk to us about, uh, climate change and other fun topics. <laughs> yeah. And, and rest in peace, the other Mario Molina. Yeah, well, I got to say, he was a better chemist than uh, I will ever be, but I was definitely a better climber than he'll ever be. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so uh, how do you describe your work? You work for Protect Our Winners. Um, what, what is your role there and what is the mission of the organization? Yeah, I'm, I'm the executive director for both Protect Our Winters and Protect Our Winters Action Fund, POW AF, as we like to as we like to call it. And I think a lot of what we, the topics that we cover uh, in this you know in this podcast will likely fall under the umbrella of POW AF. And so POW AF's mission is to elect climate champions into office that represent the interests of the outdoor sports community. And uh, POW's mission is to turn passionate outdoor advocates and uh, passionate outdoor enthusiasts into effective climate advocates so that we can protect the landscapes and the places that we love to climb in uh, for generations to come. So how would you, um, I guess we'll have to just do this. Um, maybe, maybe you covered it just now and I didn't understand, but what's the the action fund versus what I guess we've come to know as as uh, power protect our winners for sure so 
when I came on board uh, as executive director in 2017, you know, in my conversations with the board, there was really strong alignment around what it was that, where it was it, how, and you know, our community could add value. And we realized that a big part of that was actually motivating voters to vote for climate champions in critical elections. And legally, you know, a, a nonprofit with a POW, Protect Our Winters is constituted, can't do that. Protect Our Winters is a 501c3. Um, and so we decided to form POW AF, which okay. is a 501c4. And 501, like C4s, while we cannot coordinate directly with a campaign, we can definitely talk about you know, political issues and we can endorse candidates and we can propose, and we can propose uh, agendas. And so... Right off the bat, like right off the bat, I'm gonna make a big make a plug. Like that's why POW AF is able to launch. We launched our, POW, our voter guidebook last week, and it can be found at powactionfund.org. And it basically gives a list of all of candidates and their voting records and our recommendations uh, for Senate and at the federal level, and then of their voting records for the state at the state level on issues like renewable energy, carbon pricing, public lands protection, uh, electric vehicles, and all of those things that we care about. So you guys are basically just check GOP down the line, right? Is that what I'm supposed to do? Just Republican after Republican? Uh, I, I mean. You probably saw the debate yesterday. The science is, you know, still out there, right? Right, like right, right. Ninety-nine percent of scientists around the world agreeing that climate change is real and human caused is not quite the certainty that we need before right. we start making big, taking big action and making big decisions. Uh, no, so you know, there. I have to say, like, and without getting too into the weeds right now, that there are there are Republicans that that realize that this is a priority and that this is important. Sure. And so unfortunately, in, and by that I mean Republican elected officials, because across our community, we did a survey in 2019 and across our community, regardless of whether people identified as Democrat, Republican or independent, it was well over 60%, at least in the outdoor sports world, uh, of people who acknowledge that yes, climate change is real, it's human cost, it's a problem, we should do something about it. Okay. Yeah. So did you got, did Powell send the fly? Well, you know what? I think, you know, flies are attracted to <laughs> certain things. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just natural is what you're getting at. Okay. So, but um, yeah, yeah, we I'm, have to do a whole, we try to influence the behavior of the people, you know, to get out and vote, but it doesn't require a lot to influence the behavior of flies. Right. Right on. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that, that was a little bit of a loaded question. The original one, um, which I hope you were, you were ready for, but, um, yeah, the the I, I think that there's this crossover, at least between, let's say, climbing and sort of backcountry skiing, you know, with a certain group of outdoor sportsmen like uh, hunting and fishing and all those sorts of things. And there seems to there seems to be a growing group of people in that world that are also very much on board with this as they watch their favorite uh, habitats where they hunt and fish. Uh, coming under influence from from climate change. I mean, right here in the Roaring Fork Valley, we've got two gold medal gold medal. Uh, trout streams that routinely approach uh, a warmth level and depth level that are really bad for fish. Um, and even in recent years, that's been recommended that people stop fishing altogether for certain parts of the summer. So, um, yeah, so there is like a growing awareness. Not to mention the wildfires. Yeah, the wildfires too. Originally, you know, I've always seen POW and I think it started kind of started out as this big ski industry. And, and skier thing protect our winters that obviously makes you think of snow you make you think of skiing there's been a recent push and i don't know if that has to do with you or with uh, uh just some idea in the management to uh to include climbers in this so tell us a little bit about that shift or if if it wasn't really a shift it's just my perception how you changed the perception of the of protect our winters no it, it was it was a very intentional shift and i'm glad i mean um I'm glad that you that you noticed because if people ask core to the climbing community, as you notice, it means that we're we're, we're getting through. Uh, so Pal started. Jeremy Jones founded it, and Jeremy Jones is a uh, back you know world renowned in the world of backcountry snowboarding. He uh, gave up. Uh, heli travel for human powered snowboarding and actually proved that you could ski some you know, or ride some of the biggest peaks in the world, like in the Himalayas. 
you know, uh, under human power. And it was through his experience in the mountains that he started realizing how much it was, snowpack was changing. And he came back and it wasn't an industry initiative. It was him going like, uh, I need to do something about this. Like, I'm gonna work with an organization that's really mobilizing the outdoor sports community on this issue and realized that there wasn't one. And so in, in classic Jeremy fashion, he said, I'm gonna start one and got on the phone and he's you know good friends with Conrad, Conrad Anker. And Conrad was one of the first uh, board members at Tao. And so, yeah, it started basically because of Jeremy Circle with a lot of snowboarders and splitboarders. But eventually, like for the last few years, like, people like Matt Siegel have been involved for, you know, five or six years. Conrad was one of the original, as I said, one of the original uh, board members. So there was definitely a strong uh, contingent of the climbing community already within within POW. Then when I came uh, on board in 2017 uh, you know, as, as the ED. A, I, you know, I started climbing long before I started, uh, long before I started snowboarding, and so I've always identified with, you know, the climbing community pretty strongly. And I, you know, there's a lot of people, you know, looking from the outside that look at POW as, oh, this is a, like it's a snow sports uh, group, and we're missing out on people who share our, on bringing in people who share our ethos, who share our concerns. And who and who want to do something by by remain by maintaining that perception. So started to start working with you know, Conrad and Matt and a couple of the people, other climbers that we had in our network, and bring in more people from the climbing community, but in a way that was genuine. And that's always been really important for us. Um, it's a matter of like, how do we do this in a way that's genuine and not, you know, in in organizing you call it. Uh, uh, astroturf where you pretend to be something you're not mm-hmm. um and so and it was and so we thought well it has to come from it has to, it has to come from climbers and it has to come from the community and so you know we brought uh we invited tommy to come to one of our events tommy caldwell to come to one of our events and kind of explain to him where we were at what we were trying to do and he's like yeah you guys are legit i'll you know i'll, I'll support it in a huge part it was also tommy and conrad and graham all coming together and saying yeah this is you know this is a legit organization that can represent our interests in a in a genuine way and i've been a year and actually climbers have been some of our strongest representatives now both in in our lobby trips to dc as well as in our efforts to get out the vote uh, in our recent efforts to get out the vote been it's been really fantastic to see these communities come together and then when we have you know when we were still having in-person events uh we did a big event in moab utah last year where we brought probably a hundred of our athletes and partners together and it was just awesome to see the communities you know mingling uh, i like to say that if i ever have to pick i'll go uh you know, I'll go snowboarding with Matt Siegel and then take uh, Jeremy Jones climbing and be able to hold my own. Right. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to just uh, pivot a bit to a more depressing aspect of this conversation because if I could just take that, a that's stab. That's kind of your thing, actually. I know, I'm trying to get away from that. But um, <laughs> especially with this topic and especially this year, uh, it's hard not to despair about the the state that we're in you know, it's encouraging on the one hand that we just had our, you know, this so-called quote unquote debate, presidential debate, if you can call it that, uh, where um, a climate change question appeared for, I believe it was the first time in 20 years. And the question was simply, what do you believe about climate change? As if what one believes or doesn't believe has like matters the fuck at all about uh, what is true and isn't true. Um, so we're still at the stage of, you know, the, the conversation being a, a matter of what is the um, existential quality of, of of climate change and what do we know is true and isn't true, as opposed to pivoting to solutions that were have been sorely needed for decades. Um, and the the other thing that's really made me despair about this conversation is just seeing the response to the pandemic in our country this year in which, uh, you know, the idea that um, a large population would mobilize to effectively change their actions in a way that would have a meaningful outcome that, that is desired in terms of improving our, you know, our carbon output and, and making progress toward uh, mitigating the effects of, of climate change. You can't even get people to wear a mask to go into Costco to buy their 
30 pack of plastic water bottles, the, the hurdles seem overwhelming. Um, uh, I'd also just like to bring up the topic of um, the, the advocacy part of it, because, you know, what are we really doing? Like getting people on board and, and, you know, being voices on social media for advocating for climate change is one thing, but it's very removed and abstract from the potential solutions that we need to be talking about. And what are those solutions? I, I still feel like I don't know that. Cheer us up, man. Yeah. Um, well, that's, here's that's the magic. Here's the here's the thing. Like when you, I've been working on climate for like the last 10, 12 years. Uh, and I'm never like the guy that shows up and people are like, let's talk about happy things. Uh, so it's okay. I'm kind of, I'm kind of used to it. Oh, you're in good company. Uh, <laughs> and so, right. It's, it's, it's like chipping at 10 sleep. Um, so, um, let's, let's dig right into it. So I think there's a lot to unpack there. So the three things that I heard you really bring up that, uh, sound depressing, are one, you know, we can't get past the conversation about whether it's real or not, and you know, the just like the existential debate around climate. Two is, you know, how do we mobilize people to take sweep the sweeping action that we believe is that we believe is required? And then three is, we're not even talking about the solutions. What are the solutions, right? And so let's try and detangle those and tackle them one by one. First is. Trump is not representative of the majority of Americans. You know, I have friends who, you know, vote for Trump, who will vote for Trump, who when I talk to them about this, they're like, I know he's a buffoon. I know he's an idiot. Uh, I just, I am scared about him coming to take my guns. You know, friends of mine that I climbed with in Arkansas, they're like, they're also gun owners. And for them, that's a, like a top priority issue. Or I'm scared about, you know, it's going towards socialism. But when you talk to them about environment and clean energy and climate, they get it. So I don't I don't think that we have to despair in terms of the number of people who agree with Trump on denialism. We basically even the majority of people within the GOP don't agree with Trump on climate. But he just keeps playing this game where he drops these bits of completely irrational bullshit that will secure a small segment of his, you know, of this far right coalition that he relies on as as his base. But we, I'm not really concerned. My at, at Pow and in general, I don't think we should be concerned with how do we convince people who are absolute climate deniers that it is happening. We don't need those people any more than we need the flat earthers. The challenge comes more when you hear things like you know, Pence's attacks uh, yesterday and trying to tie it into you know uh, Kamala Harris's. Uh, uh, support of the green of the early Green New Deal. There's a lot of the Green New Deal is a is a is a valuable thought uh, is a valuable framework, but there's a lot of challenges with implementing something as sweeping as the Green New Deal as it as it would be, and yet that's not what Biden's proposing, right? Like, and we have the technological solutions and the market solutions. So, moving on to like okay, the the piece of the, about advocacy and people and people moving. Let's say let's forget about the deniers. Let's forget about the people who you know think that climate change is a hoax and the people that we can still actually mobilize a political majority that agrees with us on you know the the importance of clean energy electric vehicles you know energy independence and transitioning away from fossil fuels then we have now we have that group now the question is how do we make that a priority for people right because it really falls like Fifth, uh, even uh, amongst the Democrats, is like number five priority. And then you know, amongst Republicans, is like number 18. And so it's a matter of how do we actually elevate this as, as, as a priority to drive both civic engagement, but also, but also behavior change. And that's where I think it overlaps with the third part of your question, which is the solutions. And re the reality is that the solutions are, the market is actually handing us the solutions. It's like, over here, cheaper energy. Over here, cleaner air. Over here, and so and what we've seen with the pandemic as well, like the flip side of the uh, you know of the downside of uh, and the depressing side of the pandemic is, the pandemic has really exposed the vulnerabilities of fossil fuel and the fossil fuel business model. It was there's geopolitical. There were geopolitical geopolitical threats. Now with the decrease in demand, we saw 
you know, we saw the price of oil drop to $5 a barrel when you know that at the bare minimum, they need like a price of $25 a barrel, the most efficient. They need price of $25 a barrel to make it uh, to make it viable. You know, right now it's hovering around 40 and you're seeing bankruptcy after bankruptcy after bankruptcy. And that's not good in a way in terms of jobs. Like, you know, people who work in the fossil fuel industry, you know, they're, you know, there's a lot for them. They're just like the rest of us, right? They're solid human beings that live those careers who are scared for their jobs as, as, as all of us would be. And so the, the, the solution here is we can actually create clean energy jobs and we can actually turn this whole thing around while creating clean energy jobs. And if the pandemic's taught us anything is that those jobs are far more resilient and those jobs are far better paid and have a much better long-term prospect than the ones right now in the, in, in fossil fuels. So um, I think a, you know, we have, we have enough of a majority in terms of like, the, in terms of culture B we, you know, we need to get we need to get the crazies out of office for sure, and then see if we do that. We'll, I think we can find we can actually find common ground with a lot of people, uh, with a lot of Republicans uh, on 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 protecting the environment. Like actually, you know, conservatives were behind some of the major you know, environmental pushes in the 60s and 70s in this country, and it's time that we get we get back to that center uh, and find that and find that common ground, and that that's what gives me hope. In, in the conversations that we have, like that is that's something that we all that we can all agree on. But we have to get these divisive politicians out of office. Well, conservatism has a, as its root uh, conservation. I mean, it's it's a, a natural um, alignment and a traditional alignment that's been corrupted, I think, by special interests. And so a lot of the rhetoric, I'm not sure whether, you know, you, you dismissed it as being a bit of a. Uh, you know, talking to the crazies, but is it, is it, um, is it rhetoric that's, that's calculated on creating a sympathetic vote from people who are true climate deniers, or is it, or is there a cynical underbelly to it where it's, um, part of the fossil fuel industry that the, the some of these, uh, politicians are, you know, maybe secretly or not so secretly representing? That's a great question, and I think it's it's become it's this feedback it's become this feedback loop that's actually cornered a lot of the GOP into not being able to act on it even if they wanted to. You know, the the fossil fuel industry through the American Petroleum Institute, starting in the 1980s, funded by Exxon Mobil and Chevron and uh, you know, the, the the coal industry very systematically distributed false information about climate change uh, and very systemically had campaigns to want to shift their responsibility from polluters to individuals. And so a lot of times what we hear is that this whole issue of hypocrisy is like, oh, yeah, well, you, you know, are you guys going to stop driving your cars to the crag? Like, how are you going to get there? Like, and your ropes are made out of you know plastics and you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, all right, hold on one second. Like, you know, there's 25 companies that are in the world that are responsible for 30 to 40 percent of all CO2 emissions, and there's probably about 50 companies that are responsible for like I think it's 70 to 80 percent of CO2 emissions. Beale, the North Face, uh, Patagonia are not in that list, right? Like the emissions on the supply chain. Well, yes, we should try and cut those down in our you know our own individual emissions well yes we should try and cut those down are not the bulk of the problem uh in but the fossil fuel industry very intentionally directed attention towards the individual and towards behavior the behavior of individuals drive less eat less meat etc et all of which are good behaviors i'm not saying we shouldn't adopt them we should walk we should walk the walk uh, you know uh, walk the talk but we could do all of those things and if we don't address Thirty you percent know, of fossil fuel emissions from electricity generation by coal-fired power plants. If we don't address thirty-two percent of twenty-seven to thirty-two percent of fossil fuel emissions uh, from uh, from transportation, and look at the underlying problems and the systemic problems, and say, okay, we can actually address sixty sixty to seventy percent of emissions by transitioning to clean energy sources and an electric vehicle fleet. And then we can still drive to the crack and then we can still do all of these things, but do it with a much lower carbon emission and do it system, do it system wide. So that's, I think, the argument that the fossil fuel industry has not wanted to 
not wanted to address. It kind of, I mean, I think that this um, touches on one of my concerns, which is uh, that it's clear that no one, uh, if, if the solution involves changing our behavior to do something that's less optimal or less convenient, it's then we're doomed. And yeah. Um, and to your point, you know, we can get, you know, 70% of the way there just by focusing on, you know, a few problematic areas. So much of the activism that I see from just your average person who's fighting for these issues on the internet, let's say, is not targeted toward, toward these solutions because it's not emotional and it's not, it's not a way to get people excited. If you're gonna, you know, criticize yep. the, the North Face team for for flying down to Antarctica to to do something as silly as climb a peak and look at their carbon emissions and use that as this like, you know, um, uh, weapon against them to to highlight their hypocrisy about being climate advocates, that's um, that's an emotional argument that people are making, and it's like an, it's in some ways an effective one. But it also misses uh, the point, misses the message, and it, it it's another it's another reason to despair about this conversation. Because w- when we're focused on something like oh you you know you drive to the crag in your Sprinter van, you're you're part of the problem. We're not talking about oh let's look at uh, let's have a serious discussion about like nuclear energy and its role in our future because that's going to be how we actually make a difference. In in my humble opinion. You know, it, it's part of the. I think one of the challenges that I always find with the with the progressive left, right, and it's we love to circle the wagons and then just start shooting inwards frantically, uh, right? Uh, and so, yeah, and, know, yeah. and, and uh, that's not a problem that the other side has. They they yeah. know how to. It seems like they know how to circle the wagons and and you know oh, yeah. and and do the do you know shoot outward as you say yeah yeah i mean you've got three weeks after you know trump insults his wife you've got ted cruz calling people on behalf of on behalf yeah, yeah. Of asking them to support and asking them to support <laughs> trump right not that that's the model that we should follow um but in the meantime you know here we are like i remember when uh i'm, I'm a big fan of hamilton the musical uh, and I remember when it came out, like when I first watched it on Disney Plus, and I was like, "Oh, this is fantastic! Like, this is great! Like, you know, representation and history and like quality." And it was produced by an, an immigrant, and all the cast is, you know, representing the color. And like Monday morning, like the internet was a flare of like cancel Hamilton, you know, yeah. because <laughs> yeah, I'm like, ah. um, you know, it's kind of like that same thing, like you know, athletes flying into into Antarctica, and it's you know. I, I see it and I understand where people are coming from with it and, you know, and the good intentions, but the road to solutions is not going to be paved with good intentions. Right. The road to solutions is going to be paved with a pragmatic, with a pragmatic approach. Uh, and the pragmatic approach is we need to scale these solutions quickly. And, you know, to your point, Andrew, you were talking about, well, if we're going to rely on people changing their own behavior, we're doomed. I hope not, but it's also, I remember when I first started like getting into this stuff, it was like, oh, you got to drive less, man. Like, you know, people have to drive less and we have to figure out how to drive less and change light bulbs. And all of a sudden, Elon Musk comes around and it's like, or you can drive like this really cool car uh, that outperforms every other sedan in the industry. And sure enough, there's a privileged thing there where it's like, well, who can afford a Tesla? But you know, as with all market technologies, it's like we're seeing now, you know, they're, they're thinking they can come out, you know, he's saying they can come out with a Tesla at 25,000 here in the next year or two. You know, the price of solar energy has dropped 99% in the last decade to where now you can generate electricity at, you know, I think it's, you know, lowest bid that I've seen is like 14 cents per uh, per, uh, per watt, you know, like it's just, it's getting cheaper. Like the technology is getting better. The technology is getting cheaper. I don't remember uh, which sheet it was, but it, this quote subscribed to the, I don't know, Sheikh Ahmed Musal or something in Saudi Arabia, but I love it. It says, um, you know, the stone age didn't end because we ran out of stones. <laughs> yeah. That's it, perfect. It, it, it ended because we found better technologies. Yeah. So, I, you know, I'll admit that um, I'm also, I end up skeptical. I'm not quite as dark about it maybe in my presentation as, uh, as Andrew, but um, you know, I'll, you know, it's like, I live down the road from Aspen 
you know, and, and that's the big fun thing to do here is point out, like when there's a climate summit there that the, you know, everybody comes on their private jets. Um, and it's not, you know, it's not, not true. We're not making that mm-hmm. up. You know, it's like, even I think years ago, Al, uh, who you work for Al Gore, he showed up in a private jet, you know, the guy. So, oh, yeah. but what else are you supposed to do? You know, Greta, Greta Thunberg, she came across the ocean in the, in the sailboat. Good honor. It took a long time, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I feel this. I, I, and also, I, you know, it's like the, the, you know, Aspen Ski Co. runs their their resort on either offsets. I'm not sure how they're doing it, but the 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 deal is is that it's green. The the lifts, you know, they must do offsets for their for their snowmobiles or whatever. But that's just smoke and mirrors because the ski industry is about destination travel and about real estate and about second, third, fourth, fifth homes. So that's what makes me sometimes skeptical and you don't need to address that, but is that, yeah. I, okay. Your lifts are running on biodiesel. Whoop-de-doo, you know, you're, there's like 400 flights a day coming to your resort. Like it's over, you know, but with that in mind, I noted that the ski community and the climbing community are, I think different in a lot, a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, for one thing, oh, the, for sure. I think the, 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 the climbing maybe more in the past, but still the climbing, um community like is you know this very connected to the the outdoors to um public lands and all that sort of thing if you go into the whole industry i think the people that are connected like the uphill skiers the backcountry skiers are sort of the fringe more of if you took all skiers you know all skiers are are vacation resort skiers so you've got a different community have you figured out um a tailored message that maybe is different that that you're sort of focusing on the climbers with um in terms of how you're sort of addressing uh what you what you see as solutions what you see we can do um or is it really just about voting at this point so much there it's what you're saying is so true like um and for me i think that what we gravitate towards at pow is the shared ethos that backcountry you know skiers backcountry snowboarders uh, and you know where the overlap is with the climbing you know, with the climbing community. Basically, those of us that actually spend time in touch and depend you know and, de- and depend on the predictability and stability of the climate to actually practice the sports that we love in the places that we love. Like even skiers, they don't you know ski- like resort skiers, they don't quite make the connection that yeah, if the world's you know two degrees warmer, your Aspen ski vacation is fucked. Like, you know, and so it takes like that, that it's like two three steps removed you know well i mean um, that, that's kind of why like when the rivers i mean i don't like it when the rivers here become in uh, inhospitable to fish but part of me is like well those yeah. folks suddenly are affected and when you when you're you can't go fishing around here uh you know that's a big deal and that's gonna like finally maybe uh, make people change their minds so yeah, and then here's you know in terms of customizing like our message, I think that the 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 common ground here again is our public lands, right? Like the land, the land itself. Like what is America actually built on? And so we we did a video that's on YouTube. Uh, it's called Common Ground. I don't know if either one of you saw it. And mm-hmm. Narrated by Jimmy. Um, and you know we we're having these conversations and we're trying to put a piece of content out that address the moment, but that also could you know cross party lines and say like what do we all have in common like what is the one thing that the country is built on what is the one thing that we all agree on and you know and that is the it's it's the land right it's it's uh like that 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 connection and i think that even people who are resort skiers you know the majority um you know they they admire and they aspire to see like to be out, you know, to be out there, you know, mm-hmm. like wherever out there is, you know, and so kind of like gym climbers aspire to climb outside. And I think that what we, what we have going for us is the, is, is that ethos um, because you don't just buy, well, some people do and it sucks for the rest of us, but you don't just buy a bunch of gear and go out and do this stuff. Right. Like there's, there's a certain ethos. There's a certain, you know, there's a certain level of skill required. There's a certain 
situational awareness that's necessary. And to me, like that lifestyle and that approach is the same lifestyle and approach that we can apply to this issue where it's like it's a multivariate, very pragmatic approach to how do we get from point A to point B to point C in a progressing, you know, how do we progress from point A to point B to point C, uh, you know, and somewhat devoid of emotion. Like it doesn't matter whether you believe in gravity or not. If you don't make the move, you're going to fucking take a whipper. Like that's just the way, that's just the way it works. And the way that you solve through it is, you know, stepwise progression. And that's why, you know, the hypocrisy thing as well, that's kind of what we, the way we approach it. And we talk about imperfect advocacy. It's like, yeah, well, I mean, we may still be driving. We may still be doing this. But the option is to sit back and do nothing and criticize the people that are trying to do something. I mean, it is about changing behavior, but it's also about presenting options to people where it's advantageous to change your behavior. That's really the key. And, you know, as silly as it sounds, we yeah. bought, a, uh, we bought a, uh, an electric lawnmower like a battery powered one. And, and, uh, cause I had this old one and it was always hard to start. And so my, uh, my significant other went out and bought this thing and I was kind of like, well, we have this old one and it's fine. I'll just get it started eventually. But then I mowed the lawn one time and I was just like, this is so awesome. It's quiet. I don't stink. It's like, uh, I mean, and, and the tech is, is, is along enough now that I can do my whole lawn with a charge, the whole thing. And I just was like thinking like, why do we love gasoline so much? It's like no one in the history of the world has ever put gasoline in their lawnmower without spilling it right on themselves right. and on the lawn and, and then smelling and you smell. And it's like, this is amazing. Like I want my life to feel like this, not to be so tied to gasoline. And I just kind of made the extrapolation in my head about electric cars and, and what you're saying of, of wishing for a future, which we could have had if, if, you know, the same amount of resources of the last 50 years were, that have been put into finding oil have been put into, you know, electricity research. We will be there already. It's, and that, that's when it comes back to like the what is necessary to actually change things. It, it's a systemic change that offers us these, these options. And an option of a cheaper electric car, when most people only drive so many miles in their lives, you know, like you said, if any if anybody could get into an electric car that performs somewhere even near a Tesla, it would be like my lawnmower. You'd just be like, "Why the hell was I driving right. that other car this whole time?" You know. But I mean, some people it'll be a lot harder yeah. than others. But it's kind of about giving options and finding those ways for well, that, a system to give us options. That's that's yeah. what's so frustrating about this whole conversation is that. Um, it's not like, you this know, this conversation or like no, the big conversation. Andrew, the big conversation. Okay. if I have one goal coming out of this conversation is you're going to walk out of here a little less frustrated. <laughs> we'll see. I mean, the, the idea that the, that the, um, you know, that you needed to convince uh, farmer Dan about the science to like send a rocket to the moon in order to send a rocket to the moon. Mm. Like it's not we don't need to convince people that the science exactly. is or isn't real. I don't know why we're stuck on that part of it. Yeah. And um, the idea that people wouldn't love, you know, great electric cars. Totally. Uh, it, the solutions are there. They just need to be implemented. And there just needs to be yeah. the, the leaders in charge who say enough of this shit, let's get this going and we can do it. You know, we should have done it 20 years ago. We can do it today though. Yeah, absolutely. And this, you know, and I totally agree. And this is, you know, again, we hear this, like, every, it seems like every election we hear, this is the most important election of your lifetime, right? But maybe every election is the most important election of our lifetime, because every election sets the course, you know, resets the course, resets the course. So every, you know, it's like saying, well, you know, this is, you know, let's say you're on a free solo, which I don't, but let's say, you know, just to be, just to be cliche about it, let's say Alex is on a, uh, on, on a climb, right? And he says, like, well, this next move is the most important move of your lifetime. Well, yeah, and the next one is as well. And the fucking following one is as well, right? Like every single one of those moves is the most important move of your lifetime. And, you know, just to draw that analogy, it's like, you know, back to this election, it's, you know, it, it's, it is that way because, you know, we've seen it in the debates, we see it in the plans, like actually, you know, Biden-Harris plan and, the, you know, the, the, the system might be obtuse and it might take away work, but where they're where they're claiming they want to go is 180 degrees different than where the current administration is trying to take the country and the and, and the world 
And there's so much potential. Again, it's not like, oh, we're going to have to sacrifice so much in order to do this. Like, there's so much potential. Europe has already invested 800 billion. Their, their latest relief, uh, COVID relief package is $800 billion. And every single component of their package includes something around you know, that energy transition or sustainability or climate. Not only because they're a bunch of greenies, but because they actually see that this is where the future is headed, right? So petro states are, you know, petro states are starting to transition. Like this is a really complex geopolitical game as well. Like how long are, is it gonna be before we enter into the 21st century economy to compete at a global level? China has already taken over uh, dominion of manufacturing of solar panels and a lot of the components, electrical components that go into the grid. We're gonna transition the grid. We're gonna have to because it's, it's cheaper, it's the, where the technology is moving. And so how long are we gonna be stuck in trying to subsidize and support an industry that has a time horizon? We heard JP Morgan announce that they're gonna start, you know, they're gonna start uh, looking, at their, looking at their investments and, uh, and cutting back their investment portfolio. Uh, you know, start like mid-sized mid um, wildcatter operations are having a hard time getting financed because there's a lot of the big banks are not financing. Like it's a crisis, like the fossil fuel industry, whether they admit it or not right now, and a lot of them are admitting it in public, BP is transitioning, Shale's transitioning, they're looking to transition. It's a crisis. So how long is it going to take for our government to actually say, hey, we see the market trends, we see where the, econ the economy is going, we see how it plays into geopolitics and our role in terms of our influence in our influence in the world, let's innovate. Let's do what we have done. You know, and I'm, you know, I I'm, I'm originally from Guatemala. I became a U.S. citizen in 2018, and I'm incredibly proud of being American. And I I'm proud not because of you know, the the whole package, but I'm proud. There's certain things about America that have been that have led you know since world you know after World War II and up to World War II like that that have just led the world in innovation. Whether it was the shot to the moon, whether it was uh, the internet, et cetera, et cetera, all of these innovations. Like when, when are we going to reclaim that leadership and say, you know, make America great again, like back to the fifties, like America wasn't that great for a lot of people in the fifties. And there's a lot of things that are much better now. And so when are we going to reclaim that innovation and actually move forward with it, with the technologies? And I do believe that the Biden plan, you know, the way that they're laying it out and taking the opportunity never before, how are we going to in a position where we're going to have to invest a trillion, trillion and a half more dollars into the economy all at once, you know, in a short amount of time. So there's this window, like, let's get the Senate back. Let's get the right administration in place and the next trillion dollars, trillion and a half dollars that get spent, let's rebuild our infrastructure to lead those lives that we're talking about where it's like electric vehicles become affordable, you know, electric lawnmowers become affordable, our electricity bills, you know, go down. And yeah, there'll be, you know, there'll be some bumps along the road, but let's get back on the road to life, you know, to lifestyles that it's instead of climate change is driving us towards a wall at 110 miles an hour, maybe these things won't solve all of it or won't get us, you know, won't avoid the, you know, some, you know, some impacts to come, but rather than step on the gas, let's hit the brakes. Well, you know, uh, Mario, you've um, succeeded in making me feel more optimistic about our predicament. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I'd be remiss not to point out that, um, that we have an immigrant here who's making me feel better about America, which is, is really exactly what, what makes this country great. Uh, so thanks for that. <laughs> Well, uh, yeah. thanks for coming on the run out and uh, cheering Andrew up just a little bit. And uh, I've also enjoyed it a lot. Um, so that was and, uh, fantastic. Ho hopefully um, you've uh, cheered up some climbers out there and uh, and inspired them to uh, get out and vote. Uh, yeah. Team Green. And if I can make, a, and if I can make a, a, a shameless plug, we have a tool out there in addition to the voter guidebook. We also have a tool. Uh, you can go to makeadamplan.org. And it's basically a one-stop shop to make sure you're registered. And if you're not registered, it'll help you register to make sure that you know where your polling place is at. And if you don't want to vote in person to request a mail-in ballot, uh, POW is actually paying for the, uh, for the processing fee and the mail of getting your mail-in ballot application form to you. So all you have to do is fill out the form. We'll mail you the form. You put it in a pre-stamped envelope, just put it in the mail, make it as easy as possible. Because the way that we're going to win this one is going to be by sheer numbers. There's so many threats right now to the democratic process that the GOP and this administration particularly is trying to is trying to highlight. Whether it be 
cutting off you know the, the, the voting locations and reducing the number of voting you know uh, pickup stations or threatening to you know challenge the results of the election that the only way we're gonna win this one is by sheer numbers mm-hmm. it's gonna be a shit show for sure November 4th it's not gonna be settled like it's gonna be a shit show and it's really gonna require for you know this you know what, what are there seven eight million climbers in the US the ma- majority of us that care about climate change to actually show up and vote and take one day off the crag to go and actually cast a ballot. Can't get enough of the runout, you say? Oh dear. Well, now there is a way to double your runout runtime. Become a Rope Gun by supporting us on Patreon, and you'll receive additional episodes and other content, such as Q&As, op-eds, and Ask Me Anythings. If you feel like your climbing media is getting too watered down and safe, you're not alone. We need more independent and original voices in climbing, because this is how we can keep the soul of our sport alive. That's our goal, and that's why we need your help. Please head over to patreon.com slash runoutpodcast and become a Rope Gun today. When it comes to running it out and taking a little bit of risk, if that makes you uncomfortable, if that fills you with fear, just tell yourself the following. You're not here to clip bolts and fiddle around with gear. You're here to send. You are a rope gun. Again, patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. Today's final bit comes from climber Lisa Hathaway. In addition to being a deep Moab local, and running a school for wayward climbing girls. Lisa belts it out around town and beyond with her various musical projects, including the Rogue Assets and the Railbirds. Here, to our delight, she was caught out singing and playing a venerable classic solo under the stars of a southeast Utah sky.
done. That was great. You've just completed another episode of The Runout, a podcast from the sharp end of climbing. I'm Andrew Bisharat, and I run Evening Sends, the only climbing website on the internet. And I'm Chris Calouse, host of the Enormacast, the only other climbing podcast. Please leave a review of our show on iTunes, share an episode with your friends, and follow us on social media. We should be fairly easy to find. Drop us a line, let us know what you think. My email is andrew at runoutpodcast.com. And my email is chris at runoutpodcast.com. And also, please support our show. Go to patreon.com slash runoutpodcast and become a rope gun today. Mm-hmm.